What's up, everybody? Welcome to Health Unchained. And this is episode 28. Can't believe it's already 28, but it's called Reaching Nirvana in Healthcare. And thanks for tuning in. I've been looking forward to speaking with today's guest for many months now. Pradeep Goel has a vast amount of experience in the healthcare IT world and in the insurance space as well. He's led companies such as Dakota Imaging, Engage Point Inc., and now Solvecare. And Solvecare is building a comprehensive healthcare platform with a blockchain-based architecture. Softcare has recently announced an important partnership with Lyft, the ride-sharing app, which we actually talk about in the episode. We speak about the many different aspects of healthcare benefits administration and how blockchain can disrupt the current healthcare system. Pradeep has used his personal and professional experience to produce a truly polished and deeply thoughtful, at least in my opinion, blockchain healthcare global company. With about 100 employees already working on this project, only time will tell how adoption will follow, but I'm excited to follow Softcare's journey. Pradeep has a series of videos on YouTube where he talks about the healthcare industry and answers many different questions about the Softcare platform. I highly recommend you check these out if you want to learn more. You can find a link to his channel in the show notes. A few quick announcements. If you enjoyed this episode or any previous episodes before, or even if you don't, <laughs> I still want you to follow my Twitter which is at Health Unchained. Connect with, connect with me on LinkedIn and also join the Telegram channel, t.me slash Health Unchained. If you are a healthcare provider, payer, administrator without a technical background and you still are trying to understand all this blockchain jargon, you should check out a Udemy course meant to teach non-technical people about blockchain's implication on healthcare. The course includes sections on cryptography, consensus mechanisms, smart contracts, and how they apply to the healthcare industry. You can even take the course on your smartphone and you'll get a certificate when you complete it. The course is $200, but you can get it for 50 bucks if you use promo code DOGUM2019. That's my last name, DOGUM, D-O-G-U-M, 2019. That's all one word. You can find a link to the course in the show notes or search for blockchain and healthcare on udemy.com. It should be the first result created by Jacob Dreyer from Simply Vital Health. All right, and now let's get to the show, everyone. Thank you. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I'll be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? What is blockchain? What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Today's guest is Pradeep Goyal, founder and CEO of Solve.Care, which was started in 2017 to create the first decentralized benefit administration platform, protocol, and digital currency using blockchain technology. Pradeep has spent more than a quarter century in healthcare IT and has built four healthcare IT companies. Pradeep, thank you for being on Health Unchained. How are you doing today? Thank you for having me, Ray. Very well, thank you. And I'm excited to be here. Maybe we could start with a little bit about your background. So, um, sure. Um, again, look forward to this conversation. Uh, healthcare for me has been a long journey and a personal one. I 
uh, right when I was in uh, when a student, a grad student, and got stumbled into healthcare and on the payer side and the insurance side. Um, and I learned a lot from that experience over many, many years, both as an IT solution builder as well as a administrator of healthcare programs. And that journey led to a lot of really interesting twists and turns. Uh, so the company that I first went to work with when I was literally a kid out of college, uh, they stuck me in the basement of the of their big insurance plan and said, go figure out how our mail is opened and how claims are handled and start there. And many years later, I ended up in the boardroom of that company on the top floor as their CIO. So th you can imagine there was quite a learning over the years, almost two decades. Which company was that? Um, this is Meridian Mutual Insurance Company. Okay. They are a holding company for multiple um, companies under them, Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Dakota, and many other organizations that roll up into the mutual. Hmm. But also had the um, opportunity to work with most of the Blue Crosses in the country uh, along the way, you know, the big ones, Anthem, which was then separate from WellPoint, as well as practically every major blue. United Healthcare, Cigna, Aetna, they were all part of my world. I was part of their world. Um, and, and I'm sure back then, this, back then you probably had to do a lot. Of, it was more, it was all paper-based at that point when you first started. So yeah, that. when I started, it was very paper-centric. That's the reason I was very fortunate to have been sent to the mailroom in the basement. Hmm. And the mailroom used to open at 4 a.m. And, you know, we would be dealing with how to optimize the process of just accepting this enormous volume of claim hospital bills and doctor bills coming at us tens of thousands a day and organizing, sorting, and then building workflow systems, figuring out how to pay them. Uh, and from that, we got into EDI, electronic data interchange, and then we got into real-time adjudication and real-time payments. So, you know, what is today just done normally, uh, you know, back then was cutting edge or even unthinkable. So I've always had to be on the cutting edge of technology as applied to healthcare. And um, there is a lot of reasons why healthcare is complex because it's regu regulated, it has got multi-party relationships that you have to deal with. It's got a lot of, healthcare is a team sport. It's never an individual sport. And there's a lot more happens behind the scenes than just a patient-doctor interaction. Absolutely. So that complexity is what I had to learn and, and learned it both from a commercial insurance perspective, but also from a government program perspective. So got very, much pulled into the Medicare operations. So Meridian had many divisions. One of them was commercial insurance. The other one was Medicare division. Another one dealt with Medicaid. Uh, so it was really interesting to look at how government pays for poor or the elderly and how the commercial insurance manages the same exact benefits, but from a employer perspective or from you and I buying insurance off their website, you know, and this is... Um, there are a lot of dimensions to this. And then how do you manage the provider network? How do you make sure that your members who are insured with you have timely and appropriate access to primary care and specialty care and tertiary care? How do you make sure they have appropriate access to emergency room? And how do you make sure that they are getting the right service at the right place at the right time and for the right price? Mm -hmm. um, how do you make sure that you don't end up restricting access to care while trying to manage over utilization of care that's a tricky and most importantly balance. it's very difficult 
and it gets, you know, it, it's always it's kind of a pendulum. Either it swings too far left or too far right. And finding that balance where you're serving all your members appropriately is, is a very difficult challenge. And the experience of the patient is always you know, going to be this. When you need healthcare, you want the best possible and unlimited care, right? Because sure. that's there is a need. You When you don't need it, you don't care about it. Right. But when you need it, you want the absolute best, maximum care, and you don't want to be at that point in time worrying about the cost. You want to be worrying about how do I get my loved one back to health? So, but the fact is that unlimited care costs unlimited money and no <laughs> program has unlimited funds. So how do you make sure that you deliver the right level of care to deliver the healthy outcome we want without having infinite expense because no company, no matter how big or small, no government program, no economy, no society has infinite resources. So you have to find this balance and that's complex. So, but in in that process, the patient's experiences, you know, can be dramatically different because depending upon your need and your expectations, the availability and the cost and the options and the alternatives, you can end up with, you know, a good result, but an unhappy, uh, unhappy experience, or you can end up with a great experience, but an unhappy outcome. So it's um, healthcare is not a transaction in the sense people think of, I go to the store and I buy a sweater and I pay for it. Healthcare is a journey and you got to manage it well. And this is true, not just America, you know, this is true in UK and Australia and Middle East and Africa and Asia. The journey may look different in the sense that who's bearing the cost and who's paying for the care. But in the end, it's the same for goals. Do I have timely access to healthcare? Am I getting the best possible healthcare that is appropriate for my need? Am I able to pay for it or somebody's paying for it? And is the result what we wanted? Is the result in the end something we can say, yep, that was the outcome that could have been achieved given the circumstances. And for that, we are happy to pay. So it's this journey that is universal. It's a human journey, not a American journey. And yeah. that's uh, what I learned over the years. Right. And I know, as I understand it, self-care is being or it's, you know, working on becoming a global healthcare company. Um, so can you maybe describe what your vision is for, for self-care? So, you know, I have uh, looked at healthcare from so many angles, the commercial insurance angle, the government pro payer angle, the government program angle, the uh, the clinical perspective, the employer perspective, and certainly as a patient or as a parent, I have a very acute uh, awareness of what my kids are, need um, and, and deserve when they uh, when their health is at risk. So when you took look at all these things from, and then I've had the good fortune of working not just in the U.S. but having uh, worked in different countries from a policy and administration perspective, at least being able to observe them closely. Uh, in the role that I was in, I had the opportunity to go and, and sit with foreign governments and look at how they're writing policy and how they're administering their benefits. It became clear that there is really, there are variations in the way we administer our care model. You can say, well, UK is fully centralized and NHS does all the care, but it doesn't fix the access, quality, timely an appropriate utilization of care just because you have one entity writing the check makes no difference because in the end that human 
collaboration, the human administration, the payment. It may be that you pay me or I pay you, but somebody's going to pay somebody mm-hmm. for the right care to the right person at the right time in the right way. So that need is universal. Mm-hmm. And you can talk to any government in the world, any insurance company in the world, and you can say to them, what do you care about? And they say, well, I care about my members having right access to or my citizens or my employees or my family having access to the right care, qualified care. I want to make sure they're getting the appropriate care. And I want to make sure that either I or somebody else can pay for it. So there is a way to compensate for this care. And I want to make sure that the outcome is appropriate given the circumstances. So that need doesn't change, whether you're talking to rural clinic in India or you're talking to you know, to the best possible care model in Boston makes no difference. So what we looked at is through experience and through analytic and and analyzing the issues and said, wait, we struggle with the same issues. We try to, it's kind of like the elephant. Everybody's pulling on the different part of the elephant and the guy with the nose blindfolded is absolutely certain he's got the, the legs and the guy with the tail is absolutely certain he's got the nose. It's just, we're looking at this complex beast and interpreting it with our prism but when you step back and say, what do I really need to do? I want to facilitate patient-provider interaction. I want to enable the patient with timely and accurate information about their care options. I want to make sure they have options to not only choose where to get care, but also to some degree engagement in what care they're getting and how to pay for it. When you look at the need to measure quality and pay for quality, then these become very fundamental needs of any healthcare system. So having enough experience, having built enough systems that didn't really deliver the promise uh, of um, a fully coordinated care, I was in a position to abstract it and say, let's build the equivalent of salesforce.com for healthcare. Let's build mm-hmm. the equivalent platform that any government, any insurance company, any hospital system, any economic model, any societal model that exists by and large can use it to drive the same four goals mm-hmm. in which I mentioned. So we were able to parlay the deep and the broad experience to say, what would I do as a CIO of an insurance plan who had maybe a multinational footprint? What kind of system would I dream about and wake up to say, this is Nirvana? And how close can we get to it? Because you can't get to Nirvana, but you can get close to appropriately configured and configurable solution platform that serves the needs of a big insurer in China as easily as it serves the biggest insurer in California. Uh, So we essentially went after the same way as we abstracted ERP or CRM. uh, And we said, how do we build that platform for healthcare? And for the audience, ERP is enterprise resource planning, um, CRM, customer resource management, I believe. Yes. Um, Yeah. So the big things like Oracle's, you know, or Microsoft Dynamics or Salesforce, these are all CRMs mm-hmm. and ERPs are your SAPs and PeopleSoft and, you know, things that right. drive enterprise backend. So, Pradeep, I, I had the opportunity of watching you present at Distributed Health um, in Nashville. So I know you're going around many conferences, but, you know, I was able to you know listen to your story there. And, you know, that conference was based around how blockchain can help the healthcare industry. So I'm just curious, how did you first learn about blockchain technology? So blockchain uh, to us was the answer to a question we had been asking for almost 10 years. You know, in my various roles and leadership roles and innovative roles, innovation uh, leadership roles and operational leadership roles, 
I was always asking the question, this fundamental question, and you hear this in every insurance boardroom for the last 20 years. You know, I'll give you a sort of a sort of sneak peek of me as a CIO going to my insurance board and saying, well, here is the what we accomplished in 2010. And now my report would go like this. It would say, well, we updated our claim system, $3 million were invested here. We built a new data center, $7 million were built here. We improved our data security. We stood up a Teradata warehouse. I spent $25 million on IT on improving our backend. And the board would say, okay, well, that's consistent with what you told us last year you would do. What about patient engagement? And I would say, well, we stood up a website where patients can come in or my members can come in and check their plan benefits. Uh, and then I would fail to tell them typically that the utilization is 3%, that out of 2 million members, 60,000 log in. Um, and then I'll say, well, I'll launch a new app where they can find a doctor. And I'll fail to tell them that only 4% actually use it. Because end of the day, I as an insurer, I'm always interested in making my administrative processes better. I'm interested in making my claim costs go down, make sure that my doctors aren't overcharging me. Those are my primary concerns. And the board wants me to engage my membership. And I do that, but I do that in the same way as I do my back office. And it's not, I'm not thinking like an Amazon. I'm not, I don't have a product that they would buy daily from me. So therefore I do this minimal patient engagement thing. And 10 years forward, if you go to 2000, you know, if I start in 2000 and in 2010, I would still be talking the same thing. And I lived that journey. I've made these presentations year in and year out and claimed success. But in the end, in the heart of your heart, you know somewhere in the back of your head that you didn't really advance the ball that much forward. You're doing the same thing you were doing last year. You're just doing it faster and cheaper, but you didn't really move the needle to giving the patient more knowledge, more power, more information, more ability, because I don't have a real-time view of my members. I don't really see what they're doing till 90 days after they have been to the doctor and I get a bill. That's, That's when true. I see what happened. Mm -hmm. So I am always looking in the rear view mirror. I'm always looking at what happened 90 days ago. And how do I, as an insurance company executive who is in charge of innovation and in operations and technology, and I have huge budgets, but I can't seem to be able to ever reach my members at the right time. I don't have a way to engage with them at the point of need, at the point of care, I'm always looking at it from a point of paying the bill after it's all been done. So how do I really influence a decision? I don't. I stand up apps and I stand up portals because I don't manage that relationship with the doctor. And if I do manage it too much, then I'm a cop and mm. nobody wants me to be a cop. So all this, this has been a dilemma for every insurance executive for, you know, for time immemorial. So when blockchain came around, we weren't really looking at it from a point of view of crypto and all that. We were looking at it as a point of view of, wait, I could actually stand up a care network that allows these people, my doctors and my members, to interact with each other in a real-time fashion that actually facilitates the kind of behavior that I want from my doctor and my patient, which is to get well quickly. But I don't want to be actually administering that transaction because they don't want me to administer the transaction. So I need to sponsor something but I can't be the sole owner of that sponsored network. Nobody's going to join my network if I am the repository and controller of that network because nobody wants me as an insurer between them and their doctor, right? 
It's true. So we realized that in in blockchain, what really struck me on day one is I can be a neutral sponsor of the optimal transactional, procedural, and clinical care without having to be the guy who controls the data, controls the website, controls the app, controls the backend. And I could push the appropriate level of behavioral, transactional, and financial capability to the point of care, point of need, in the right in the hands of the doctor and the patient, and facilitate and reward the right behavior, but not be seen as a policeman. And that epiphany is when we said we are good. And then we realized to do any of what I just said, you can't do this as an app. You can't build a decentralized app and say, well, we got the app to monitor glucose. I got the app to do provider registry lookup. That's not going to work because that's yet another Band-Aid on the, on the problem. So we said, okay, let's go back and build a platform where a care network sponsor can truly publish a care network that allows the right participants to join the network in the right relationship with the other network participants. And we can pr proactively define how those relationships should work with each other. And we can ensure they are working in the right way, but we don't have to do it manually or through our systems. So this ability to delegate trust and authority to patient and doctor, uh, I know I've, I've said that for the last two years in, in maybe 200 conferences that the real value of blockchain healthcare is the ability to delegate trust, delegate actionability, delegate payments, and delegate authority of decision to my participants instead of me in my centralized systems. But people don't quite understand what that means. But this is a probably an easier way to understand it, which is if I can allow my doctor and my patient to interact with each other the, the way I want them to interact with each other to the right outcome, which is get well soon without wasting your money and my money, and follow the best care practices. Don't over-prescribe or under-prescribe. Take the best possible care of my members so they can get out of the hospital with the, with the best possible care as quickly as they can and get back to their life. And I can do that without being the policeman between the two of them, but I can come back and audit and reward the right behavior almost in real time, not 90 days later. That's nirvana. <laughs> That's nirvana for an insurance executive because in the end, whether I'm an insurance company or a big employer self-insuring my employees, or I'm a government agency responsible for all the poor people in my state, or I'm a central health agency responsible for managing epidemic of disease and influenza and other things spreading in my, in my country, I have the same problem regardless. It is to how to make sure that these things are done right. So this is where we realize that blockchain as a decentralized ledger that allows verification auditability would serve as a fabric on which we can design care networks that enforce the right behavior and the right relationships and the right transactional, peer-to-peer -peer transactional capability. And we could do that with absolute certainty by every participant that I'm not abusing that trust because I don't have this absolute control over this network. So I have built it, published it, asked you to use it if you wanna be part of my network and you are confident that your participation in this does not put you at a disadvantage. I'm not misusing your information against you. I'm using your, allowing you to use your information with the right party who needs to know that information, your doctor, your specialist, your pharmacist, and I'm making sure they're doing their job the best possible way, and I'm paying them in real time to do their good job, but I don't have to know the details of your transaction and interaction between you and your doctor, right? Mm -hmm. So this is that, right degree of separation between me and my people I care about is what we have. That's the basis of solve care using blockchain.
So I have a few questions there. Thank you for explaining that. Um, so I agree, blockchain does enable this peer-to-peer -peer interaction with you know multiple stakeholders and without the involvement of a third party um, or outside entity that controls or watches what's going on. How does self-care, you said that you know, you're allowing or you are kind of controlling that the doctor is providing the right amount of care, but the right amount of care is actually sometimes subjective. You know, some pr providers think that it is appropriate to do another blood test for a specific thing, and another doctor might think it's not that uh, urgent or this, you know, $10,000 test may not be um, necessary for this person. So how do you control for that, or do you leave it upon the doctors to decide that? How does that work? Well, it's a collaborative effort. So first is that you no system works. No system can be sustainable if you have a um, adversarial relationship with your care delivery organization. So, you know, insurers aren't physicians. They can employ physicians, right. but they can't be physicians, right? Right. So at the best I can have is a chief medical officer, a medical necessity director, uh, who is going to spot check certain number of claims or behaviors to see if we are a habitual overutilization. So the way you do this is you don't start by, again, you don't want to be the policeman of care. What you want to do is to optimize the care results. So first thing you do is you can inform through the blockchain for the for individual need of a patient in an individual interaction with their doctor, you can inform both sides what the care guidelines as the insurer believes they are to both of them. So you're educating and informing them through the care wallet, which is our product, which uses your participation in the network um, to deliver care cards in real time. So the, the blockchain can publish essentially new care cards into your wallet based on what just happened. You know, pretty fell down and broke his arm. Well, clearly he's gonna go into the emergency room or to a orthopedic center and get his arm set and put in a cast. But there is also, once I know that, I also know that there's going to be probably re rehabilitation and therapy needed. He's going to have to wear a cast for six weeks. And then the best practice says I should also go for six weeks of PT, physical therapy. Mm -hmm. So I, as an insurer, can immediately say, okay, but if you have a, uh, you know, you, knowing that your right arm broke, you also probably can work full time. So I can start things immediately in action like, okay, when your cast gets removed, we're going to get you booked for physical therapy. If you are unable to drive, I'll get you a transportation card. So you using the care wallet. So now you have the lift card in your wallet so you can actually yeah. go back and forth to your facility. I will make sure that you have painkillers delivered to you uh, in the mail, or I'll send you a coupon for over-the-counter painkillers that you can buy 10% cheaper than if you walked into Walgreens tomorrow. Um, I can even inform your employer uh, that if you go on a long, you know, if your short-term disability is only four weeks and you need to go on two weeks of long-term disability, I'll kick in that. There's a lot I can do to take care of the, my member if I am aware of what just happened without telling them how to treat, right? Mm -hmm. So benefit administration isn't about thou shall not do this because I don't think that the patient deserves it. It's more about here are the best guidelines, here are the best ways I can get pretty back to work. Not only should you get the cost, you should also do PT. And I'm willing to pay 100% of your physical therapy because I don't want you to have a weak arm which can then develop a chronic condition downstream for which I'll end up paying for, right? Right. So that's one happy path. Another thing I can do is I can tell the doctor that in the event of this kind of a fracture, the latest guidelines that exist 
both in terms of curative and then uh, rehabilitative rehabilitative uh, actions that you should take here are the best guidelines from the american association of uh, orthopedics and they may know already this or they may not hmm. but if they follow the guidelines minimally then i can say to them look i'll uh, you don't have to pretty doesn't have to make a copay payment i'll pay you 100% of the bill normally the bill is split between patient and insurance but i could say to them if you do all these things that i believe will get pretty out of the back to work faster you know put this kind of a cast on uh check do every four weeks a visit and don't wait for 12 weeks and then find out something went wrong you know do care continuity uh, whatever um the, if you follow these i'm going to give you either 5% more or i'm going to give you make copay go away so the patient doesn't have to pay anything you don't bill the patient much simpler for you what have i done i haven't told the doctor don't take care of my patient i've said to them here are the best guidelines and here is what you should do minimally if you can do more by all means sure. if you think more is needed do it but minimally you should do this so as an as a administrator of benefits i'm looking at the long game right i'm almost right. always looking at the long game of keeping my members healthy you know the 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 general myth is that insurance companies don't like to pay claims the issue is not that the issue is insurance companies are really and should focus on and government agencies and employers should focus on keeping their employees or citizens or members healthy and when they get sick sick get them back to health quickly that's utopia right that's the right way to do business so in that regard what we are saying is you can use our platform to coordinate care between patient and provider by informing them both of care practices that make the most sense they are free to deviate if the doctor sees a deviation is appropriate because i can only give you guidelines i can't treat the patient but if you follow guidelines and you get the patient out of the doctor or back to work quickly then i'm going to give you immediate and incentives and rewards both to the patient for taking their antibiotics for the full course and to the physician additional incentive like no copay or additional you know percentage of payment and so on and so forth so the reason we built the three legged platform is administrative care coordination and financial is because they really interact with each other when you're trying to drive the best possible result you got to make it easy to go see the doctor you got to make it sure that the patient ends up at the doctor's office on the on the desired time and date you got to make it easy for the doctor to see the patient and reduce the eligibility checking and the billing complexities so they actually want to see my patients instead of somebody else's patients you got to make sure that they have awareness of what are the best ki- kind of care practices around this particular episode that you should be aware of and if you follow them i'm going to pay you quickly real time and more um those are three things that come together to deliver this behavioral and outcome management goal that everybody on the planet has absolutely and you mentioned like you know you need to get the patient to the you know to their visit on time and make sure that they're able to get there with transportation but there's also the option or potential use case for telehealth and doing a visit virtually instead of actually driving to a clinic and i know that's not going to always be relevant sometimes the doctor needs to see the person you know face to face but i'm wondering how has or how can selfcare improve telehealth adoption so to us the the access to care is not just about you know the the patient going to the doctor it can be the doctor coming to the patient either in physical form or telehealth wise so to to me that represents just another care card so if if care card okay given given the scenario that given the condition 
that we are dealing with, I, as an as a sponsor of benefits, might say, you know what, Pradeep, here is a lift card to go to the doctor, so you can actually get in the lift and go right now, and we'll pay for your transportation. Or here is a telemedicine card, telehealth card, and you can consult with a physician who is very qualified in this condition, and we'll pay for the entire consult too. So as a uh, incentive, I mean, I don't want to force people to take telehealth over in-person visit. That can be at times seen as, again, uh, being the cop between the patient and the provider. But I can certainly provide options. I can provide, uh, you know, real-time appointment to my network. I can provide telemedicine through a, another uh, form of consult, or I can say transportation being a barrier. Here's your transportation card. Or if your pharmaceutical prescription is out of your bounds, you can pay for it. Here is your discount card. Or if you buy from my online pharmacy, I'll give you free shipping and no copay. I can create a basically a personalized care experience around a wallet holder if they have my wallet, right? So the whole idea right. is that the chain lets me, and then if somebody comes to me and challenges me and says, well, why did you give him a teleconsult, not an in-person visit? I have an immutable record of saying, well, I gave patient three options. I gave them all three options. They elected to do this. Um, and if the, if the if the pattern emerges that some certain elections are always leading to bad results, I can quickly remove that option and say, we're not going to give you that option. You're going to have to go in because this kind of an episode requires in-person, even though telehealth is effective most of the time. My point in this is every needs, every individual's healthcare needs are unique. There is no such thing as my healthcare needs the same as yours. And the challenge I, our administrators of healthcare have is how do they personalize care to the point it's relevant and effective for each one of us individually, but still manage it in some kind of a logical fashion. So what we are looking at, the platform is to facilitate, in one sentence, same way as you hear about precision medicine, where medicine will be built specifically for my DNA or your DNA in the near future. So we're not gonna just buy a off-the-shelf medicine. Medicines will be compiled and compounded for our specific diseases uh, and specific uh, physical and, and genetic makeup, same way we should be able to deliver precision benefits. Hmm. What Pradeep needs for his healthcare and his wellness, both preventative, curative, curative and rehabilitative, and even chronic you know, um, disease management. These are different ways you do care, right? Either you prevent disease or you deal with an episode or you manage a long-term disease or you deal with rehabilitation post-episode. So whether you're doing preventative or curative or, or, or uh, uh, chronic disease management or rehabilitation, we are all individuals. We are all unique. So if we could achieve through the care wallet highly personalized benefits that work for you differently than they work for me, but they work well for each one of us, that will make both healthcare costs go down and they'll also make healthcare satisfaction go up. And we can scale it. Right. So actually, so we've talked a little bit about, you know, wallets, care cards, but um, let's explain the whole suite of software products to the audience. I think it'd be helpful um, during this conversation. So there's the care wallet, there's the care cards, the care coin, the care vault and care protocol. And, yeah. you know, you can have a transaction on this care marketplace. So would you mind kind of going through those and just explaining this ecosystem a little bit further? Yeah, so I mentioned that we have built a platform and I think this you just described all the key components of the platform. So what, why we have all these components is because 
you know, in simple terms, healthcare is complex. You can't just go there and say, I have an app that does something. It will serve a very small fraction of the population uh, because so many variations exist in the actual relationships between doctor, patient, employer, insurer, and so on. A lot of healthcare is like an iceberg, right? What the patient sees is a small tip above the water. The 99% of the healthcare complexity is below the water. So we are focused on the big iceberg and saying, how do we make manage this big giant thing that nobody sees and make it work for everyone in every part of the world? Hmm. So we have created a very multi-tiered platform. And I'm an expert. I'm, I'm an architect by, by training. So I built a lot of complex systems, both you know, insurance and state and national scale. And what we have done is taken all the lessons learned from building platforms no less than than say Salesforce or even uh, you know the ERP systems or even bigger than them and try to create a very logical structure so the platform itself is accessed through the care protocols the platform has all the infrastructure and components and blockchain and other com- technologies in it but you don't just go and start reading and writing to a blockchain the way you access the platform capability in terms of business is you design the participants that you want uh, that you want to manage, that you want to interact with your with your uh, care wallet. You create a participation map in the care protocol. That means that if I am an insurance company, I'm going to have a participation map consisting of my members, you, mm-hmm. and my doctors, and my specialists and my facilities, and my labs, and my pharmacies, and maybe my online pharmacy vendor, and my telehealth vendor. So this is my participation map. I want these people to be collaborative on a network that is sitting on SolveCare, that is published on SolveCare platform. And let's call it the insurance company ABC network. And I have designed that I have nine types of participants in it. Patient, family member of the patient, or member, family member of the member rather, uh, primary care physician, specialty physician, therapist, and so on. This is my network. And I'm going to issue care wallets to all these participant types. And I'm going to say that when you use the care wallet to connect to my network, you will get certain care cards that will let you do things that today you can't do or you can't do quickly or efficiently. And is clear defined value for you using the care card in your role as a patient or as a family member or as a transportation driver or as a pharmacist. Those benefits appear in the form of cards and coins in your wallet. Okay? So re- really quick, the care cards act as like non-fungible assets that you can use or trade. It's kind of like a coupon that you can use to get some sort of service? There are three types of fundamental. They can be imagination um, um, of the network publisher is really the only limit, but okay. three fundamental types of care cards. One is administrative card. I'm sending you a card, Ray, and that card lets you make real-time appointment for your annual wellness checkup, which I really want you to have. And I that card will let you book a real-time appointment with my network of primary care physicians who are qualified to do a full annual wellness, right? Mm-hmm. And if you use the card to make the appointment, you don't have to pay one cent out of pocket. No copay. Okay. Okay, so this is one administrative card, right? I can also deliver you a card for clinical care. Oh, pretty. We we, we re- recognize from recent events in your care ledger that you have developed diabetes. So here is a card around how do you manage diabetes in the early stages? Health, you know, diet, sleep, um, stress, 
smoking, alcohol. Here are the guidelines on how you can manage this lifelong condition you have just developed. So that's a clinical card that I send you. Then there's a financial card that I can send you saying, well, the fact that you are my insurance company plan member, I'm giving you a discount card that you can show any pharmacy. And when they scan that card, you will get 10% off on all the over-the-counter medication related to diabetes. So it's a financial card, right? So the point is that we basically categorize cards into administrative, clinical, and financial. But the card purpose is singularly designed based on the needs of the patient or the, or the wallet holder. A very different set of cards will go to the doctor. The, the card I'll send to the doctor is about how do you bill me for my members coming to see you? So I can give you a claims card. I can give you a, uh, attach coins to the card and say, the moment you enter my, your claim information about patient Pradeep having seen you yesterday, I will give you care coins to pay you real time. No 93 day wait. I don't need to adjudicate the claim. I am paying you instantly. So that's the objective of a provider facing wallet. Provider wallet has different cards. Let's say it's a family member of the patient. And because Pradeep has diabetes, I want to engage his spouse and his kids in making sure that he does certain things to stay well. So I could incentivize Pradeep's wife with a care wallet and a care card saying, Alessia, if, if you can report on this card certain things about your husband and report that you're doing certain things, we will give you care coins as an incentive which you can spend on his medication. What we are trying to do here is that we are saying to our clients, if SolveCare goes to a client, a big insurance, small insurance, small government, we're talking to government agencies of all sizes, hmm. governments that have 150,000 citizens in their whole country to people who have one and a half billion people in their country. And we are saying, okay, where is it that you wanna make the greatest impact? And some will say, I wanna focus on the children. Some will say, I wanna focus on pregnancy and mortality during childbirth. Some will say, I wanna focus on the elderly suicide rate. I, some will say I'm going to focus on you know, my young and healthy and keeping them healthy. So when you think of programs being launched around specific population groups with specific needs, they represent a network to us. So you can start a mental health network, a diabetes care network, a pregnancy care network, a elderly care network, a cancer care network, or an insurance network, or an employer network. These are just networks to us. They sit on our platform. They are mapped in the care protocol. And once they are mapped in the care protocol, the care network is activated, then the wallet holders are authorized to, who are invited or can register on the network, receive the appropriate cards from participating on the network. And all those transactions that happen inside a network is on a chain, which is ultimately the event ledger that is available to appropriate uh, wallets to interact with and to read and write. So we can now coordinate care, we can coordinate benefits, we can coordinate payments, and we can prove that the, the network is operating at higher efficiency than any other existing system that is there in the world today. So it's a very clear definition of saying, how does your world look like today before you launch a network and how does it look like in 12 months after you put all your members on the network? Very interesting. What does the Care Vault do exactly? So the the vault is the private storage of the wallet holder mm -hmm. that does not belong on the chain. Okay. Uh, the fact we use chain to coordinate events, we use chain as a mechanism to coordinate care and financial and administrative transactions mm -hmm. between wallets. 
but there is always going to be content that is not chain or um, uh, that does not belong on the chain. The, so according to the topology of the network that you define in the care protocol, you can define the, we define for our clients, what content cannot go on the chain. And that content then ends up in the vault and the vault is controlled by the wallet holder through consent cards. And if they want to share the vault data, they have to essentially give explicit consent to send that data to another wallet. So that allows me to manage uh, privacy and security and regulatory compliance. Uh, so there are really three layers. There's the protocol layer that determines what wallets can do with each other, what roles can do with each other. Then there is the the a card layer that says, here is what the card is allowed to or not allowed to do. And if a card is not meant to be shared, it can't be shared. And then there is the the vault level, which says uh, the third tier, which is I need consent for to see raised data. I can't just go into raised wall, uh, uh, raised blockchain and raise content in his wallet. I need to get specific consent. And that consent is what let, let me unlock the vault. So, so this essentially protects your privacy when it and most time you have to protect that. So when you do a x-ray test for your, you know, broken arm and there's a lab file, you know, it's an image, where does that get sent? Is it like some sort of uh cloud-based storage and then is that called the care vault and who manages that? Just want to be Yeah, clear. so in our system there is a uh, to exchange data. So think of it this way, data comes from three places. One is a wallet holder generates data, right? Mm -hmm. So wallet holder is interacting with the cards in their wallet. The second data comes from the network, which is other wallet holders generating content or interacting with the network. And third is the data that comes outside of network, which is external data coming in, which is the example here. So the depending on the origination of data, we handle it differently. If it's, of course, if it's data originated in the wallet or received from another wallet that's handled by the core network. If the data is originating outside the network, then we accept that data or or ex exchange that data through endpoints, which are essentially gateways through which we can take in data. Now, once the data hits the endpoint, it then the care protocol kicks in to say, what kind of data are we dealing with here? And can it go, is it an event data that can be on the chain or is it content that needs to stay um, in the vault? So then the endpoint will uh, will the, the will trigger an event on the chain, which will tell the wallet, your wallet, that there is a content waiting for you on the endpoint, and then, then the wallet will receive it directly, and it will not go into the chain, other than the fact that we have history of this transaction on the chain. So it's a fairly complex architecture designed to protect the right. It is see, we have to balance transparency of interaction between wallets, which is what the chain facilitates with privacy of content that the chain should not have automatic visibility to. Now I can always as a wallet holder publish content to the chain with my consent, but that's not the default position, right? That's the default position is my data is private because it's clinical data. So we have very uh, multi-tiered event and data model uh, information architecture that allows us to decide when we publish a network, when we publish a care network, what's on-chain data, what's off-chain data. And that's where, once you put that in the protocol, then that's the way it's gonna work. Interesting. So moving a little bit off topic, I'm curious about you know your global experience and which geographic and also demographic markets do you think will be the first to adopt a you know consumer-based 
uh, blockchain healthcare application at large scale? Um, well, we are certainly seeing a lot of interest uh, and success in the U.S. So, hmm. U.S. we are we are, you know, there's a lot of talk um, in the U.S. about well around the world around well blockchain is very promising and we need to find good use cases. I beg to differ. Our experience shows there is abundance of use cases if you know healthcare. Mm -hmm. The ones who ask the question, well, how will you use blockchain in healthcare, simply are saying, I don't know how healthcare works, so I can't figure out how to use it. But if you know healthcare, there is abundance of use cases. We, our, our, our value proposition to our clients isn't constrained by, well, we don't know what to do, but rather here's 100 different things for which you can build a care card, eligibility, enrollment, provider directory, appointment, referral, pre-authorization, claim, billing. Sure. I mean, tell me, yeah. it's such a long list. Oh, yeah, tell, let's, <laughs> let's look at what use cases. So for, sure. for us, it's not a question of figuring out the use case, but rather figuring out which use case applies to our client. So we are able to go into a large or small insurer or self-insured insured employer or a government agency and literally sit with them and say, let's look at your pain point. Let's not obsess over blockchain as a technology. Let's focus over what population group and what healthcare need and what objective are you striving towards? Is so do you act as a, consult, as a consultant as well? Um, you know, your company, does it help with, you know, certain projects and get getting your clients up and started, like getting going? We do. Um, not as a traditional consultant, I'll come in and do a six-month study and charge you an arm and a leg, but more in the context of we are health claim experts, healthcare experts. You are a healthcare organization that has clearly identifiable business objectives. Let's do a two-day brainstorming session. We'll show you a dozen care cards or 20 care cards that are currently in production or are in development. Let's see which of the combination of care cards in the hands of a pay member wallet will trigger the best kind of outcome for you. So we start with the problem. We then we map the problem to the the cards we have in library and we say to them, okay, these three cards, a transportation card and a legibility card and a prescription card will address the needs of this group of people you are worried about, right? So typically that's how we go in. Um, but that back to your original question. So using that approach, we have been able to penetrate into Asia. We have huge uh, traction there. We are certainly making significant inroads into production volume clients in uh, US. We are we have similar traction in Canada. We have a strong interest coming out of Africa and, and Middle East through partnerships. Our growth is not constrained by the applicability or the value of our platform. Our growth is constrained by scale. So we are focused on, we are approaching opportunities where we have quality partnerships in place. We don't want to be you know, some giant consulting organization with, the, with buildings around the world and bunch of consultants you know running around what we are looking for is high quality local partners who once they are trained and certified on a platform have a credible high integrity high quality execution so they can work with their local insurance government employer organizations or hospitals or even large community groups and say to them we can deliver to you the right set of cards for participating in the right network on this platform so that's where the the growth is driven not by well we are seeing adoption in US but not in uh, not in uh, UK it's just about whenever we as fast as we can build a global network of partners the, the as fast as we can deploy our platform around the world
Welcome to Health Unchained News Corner. Parkinson's disease is difficult to diagnose, especially since symptoms are not always clear during the early stages of the disease. There is no cure for Parkinson's disease, and it's the second most common progressive chronic neurodegenerative disease after Alzheimer's. In March 2019, a Singapore-based nonprofit foundation called Ocean Protocol announced a partnership with a health AI IoT company called Connected Life, which is collecting wearables motion data from patients as part of a clinical study with the National Neuroscience Institute in Singapore. The project includes research partners in Germany and Turkey that are developing an objective measurement of motor symptoms to advance early diagnosis and personalized treatment. There is a lot of floating data that can be used to create better AI models, but most of this data is locked up in silos across different healthcare records and different databases, or not even collected at all. This partnership will provide a safe method for sharing patient-generated data privately and securely. As their model is being trained on randomized patient data from around the world involving multiple ethnicities, age, gender, etc., this can ensure that the AI model is unbiased. After the initial cohort of 100 patients, Connected Life is planning to replicate the clinical research initiative in multiple study sites around the globe. The goal is greater than 90% accuracy for the motor symptom scoring, with data continuously gathered by the device. This announcement is brought to my attention by Andrew from the Health Unchained Telegram group. Thanks, Andrew, for being such an active contributor to the Telegram group. And now back to my conversation with Pradeep Goal, founder and CEO of SolveCare. So how many customers do you currently have? Uh, I know you have a few partnerships, one with Lyft, which I want to talk about in a little bit, as well as um, a, a previous partnership you had with Arizona Care Network as well. But um, are those what you consider customers? Or, you know, Actually, the question could be how many customers do you have and then how many users do you have? Yeah, so we haven't published that data for a number of reasons, but I'll say, tell you what we are comfortable saying publicly because for a couple of reasons. One is that we are blazing a trail in healthcare that even the giants with their multi-billion dollar budgets and investment and people uh, in blockchain have not. We are way ahead of uh, most anybody else in healthcare. So we try to keep a lot of this information private because it gives them tremendous amount of insight into how SolveCare is succeeding when most other people are just speculating. Mm -hmm. That being said, I will say this, that our active pipeline of clients, both signed and uh, and in discussions, is almost 100 distinct insurance companies around the world and mm -hmm. employers and, and government agencies and so on. So we have a vast pipeline uh, with, with our people that we are actively engaged with. Now, and that means that we are actually doing brainstorming or sessioning with them on requirements or use cases or have signed contracts or negotiating contracts. You know, we have a seven-stage sales cycle. So these people fit in that sales cycle somewhere, which is where this pipeline is. So we are very excited about it. Uh, we're also very cautious about it because we will only bite as much as we can chew and digest. So we, we are happy to say to the client, not today, come, let's come back to this in six months than to sign up a bunch more than we can actually deliver. But those are our, our philosophies that you only make one misstep to ruin a reputation. Uh, so therefore we are conservative in how fast we will take on new clients. But there's more business than we have capacity is a simple way to put it. 
Um, the in terms of um, number of users, you know, our clients are the ones who issue networks and then they issue wallets, uh, and they report to us every quarter how many wallets have they issued on the network, so to speak. You, of course, you can download the wallet from the App Store. That's not the question. The question is how many of those wallets are then registered on your network, on your instance of care network. And you may have multiple care networks. You may have one in Indonesia, one in Thailand, one in Vietnam, because you're an insurer that has insurance products in all these countries. So you may have a network for each of these areas. Or you might say, I'm going to create a diabetes care network for all of 25 countries where I sell my insurance plans. And it uh, doesn't matter. It's entirely up to you how you how you create the topography of the network. So we will, uh, we will release our uh, wallet data once a year. Uh, and some of our clients will probably not release the data to us, or at least they'll say to us, don't uh, tell anybody how many wallets you wish. Because competitive data, if you're an insurance company, you don't want your competitors to know how many care wallets are actively in the hands of your members. Uh, that gives them a pretty good uh, metric on uh, you know, how engaged your membership is. So these are all confidential data points. I think what I will say is this, that... Uh, what we can say confidently is that the target we set for 2019 for SolveCare, we would have met by end of first quarter. We were that conservative, or I guess we, the market moved that much more aggressive. What we thought we'll do for all of 2019, we will be done by end of first quarter. Can you share what you thought you would have done at the end of 2019? I will share that with the end of 2019. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll I don't want forward to, to that. But- Number My there. board isn't going to be happy with if I uh, start stating financials, but we are going through auditing right now uh, okay. for 2018. We beat our 2018 numbers and we will absolutely blow away our 2019 numbers if we stay on track at the pace at which we are seeing adoption. Okay. No, that's fair. I understand. Uh, my other question here is what metrics are being measured to actually track the progress of the Arizona Care Network project? So they Aside have several metrics. Numbers. Yeah. yeah. They are looking at their primary metric, and I don't want to speak for them, but I will speak to what they publicly have said. Their primary metric is uh, what they call the quadruple aim, but they have very well-defined metrics around impact. So the metrics that most interest us are a reduction in adverse events. Uh, so for example, they are focused on how, what percentage of their population that should have gotten their A1C. A1C is a metric of how well your diabetes is doing or how well are you doing with your diabetes management. So what percent of the population actually got their A1C um, you know, in a narrow band? So that, because wildly fluctuating A1C means your diabetes out of control and the probability of a heart attack or something is very high. But if, if your A1C is not fluctuating, it doesn't have a high amplitude, then you are managing your diabetes. And that means the probability of a heart attack over the next five years is much lower. So they're going to look at that and say, okay, what percent of the population are we able to drive down the A1C amplitude or variation? What percent of the population is actually refilling their prescription within 72 hours of prescription being refill being due? What percentage is actually showing up for the annual wellness exam? Uh, what percentage of no-show appointments do we end up making? Do we have 17% of the appointments don't get made and don't get filled when they are made uh, and they have to be rescheduled, or is it 5%? And why are these metrics important? They indicate the efficacy of the care network on improving healthcare of that population group. These are indicators that tell us, is the program working? Mm-hmm. Is the care network 
that they designed on our platform actually having the desired impact on your health and mine. Because when they, and they can also project from these metrics, is the overall cost of care coming down without impacting quality or access to care? So these are the things that matter, right? Mm-hmm. We, we can, we can exp- you know, all day long talk about, well, we got, you know, 110,000 wallets or half a million wallets in production. Great. What does it do? Right. Did you actually save lives? Did you actually reduce cost of care? Did you actually prevent preventable heart attacks? Did you actually get people out of the hospital on average faster? Did you reduce the readmission rate so they didn't come back to hospital with an infection? Those are things that matter, right? Why are we doing all this if in the end, it's an exercise to no end, no goals? So the goals are outcome. Are we improving the outcome? And the outcome is clinical outcome in terms of is the patient getting well? under the circumstances, getting the best possible result? Are we paying more than we should be paying? Of course, there'll be variation. There'll be always, somebody will need more care than the other. But the, on average, is our membership, oper- is our total network operating efficiently? Or are we blowing the national average apart? Are we somehow spending 3x the money per A1C exam? When we know A1C exam should cost $65, why are we spending 200 what is special about an A1C exam for 150,000 people that is making our A1C exam, oh, well, it turns out we have no access to labs. All the labs are concentrated in two zip codes and people have to travel from all over the state to get to this lab. That's the problem. Okay, now let's fix it. So the point here is that the Arizona Care Network has a lot of, these are their IP, so I don't want to speak too much about them uh, because this is intellectual property of uh, ACN as to what they measure in terms of efficacy, but those are the kind of metrics that we get excited about as SolveCare because we can now clearly state our network in this state for this group of people saved lives, reduced cost, made people healthier, got them back to work faster, and by the way, the whole system operated more efficiently, so we reduced the overall cost by 2%. That may not sound like a lot, but when you're spending $20 billion, Right. A year, well, 2% is 400 million bucks in cost reduction. And, oh, by the way, members are happier because they feel like we got them, embraced them with the right benefits. We're not telling them no. We're saying, yes, here is how you do what you need to do. So that's the objective that not just ACN, but most of our clients would like to achieve. And that's why we're designing networks in so many different countries in so many different ways. But they all work the same way in the end. Very interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Um, my other question is related to the Lyft partnership. Can you share about some of the milestones um, you have set already and how you hope to reach them with the Lyft, the new transportation partnership? Maybe explain what it is to the audience as well. Yeah, uh, so this is very exciting. And I know that the Lyft is a, is a great brand, a great company. They have a great vision. You know, If you read their mission statement, it's to be the best transportation solution for people around the world. I mean, the, I think that them and other companies of similar ilk have a very clear definition of what they do. They make transportation accessible, affordable, uh, accessible, great. Now, our vision is that transportation should not be thought of as something else you do in your life in the context of healthcare. We need to think of transportation as an integral part of care delivery model. Hmm. Because transportation is like uh, no different than pharmacy product. Think about it. Not every time I'm sick, I need prescription. It's not something that I should, I don't need antibiotics every time. 
But when I need them, I need them to serve a purpose to get rid of certain conditions in my body. Same way, I don't need transportation every day, but when I need it in the context of care, it is pretty important that transportation not be the barrier to me getting the right care. Whether it is my ability to go see the doctor or my ability to go get my dialysis done or the ability for me to go to the pharmacy and get my refill done or my ability to go to chiropractor to get my uh, back adjusted, which is crippling pain at this point, or whether it is my ability to return to work even though I can't drive. It, or it just doesn't going matter. to the emergency room for. So I have a, a quick story. Um, a few years ago, I dislocated my shoulder, and I didn't have a car, and obviously I couldn't drive if I had one. So I called the ride-sharing app. I don't remember which one, but um, and took me to the ER, and you know they were able to set it back in place. But I wouldn't have been able to get there any other way, and it was, you know, somewhat late in the day. So um, yeah. You know, I, 20 years ago, I wouldn't have that option. I would have to call somebody or something like that. So, And that's, that's, the, you know, that's the most compelling uh, option, of course, is that when the patient sees a need to go seek medical care, and sometimes, and oftentimes, you will see that, that the flexible transportation is as good or better alternative than waiting for medical transportation like ambulance. But I think right. Ambulance, right. ambulances are a very unique case. You have to think about them very carefully because if somebody's at risk that during transportation, something very serious can occur to them. And you don't know where that risk exists. And then obviously the emergency medical transportation has a very clear role and definition sure. in healthcare. And it's not going to get replaced and shouldn't get replaced with right. just transportation, regular transportation. But there is a lot of things that emergency medical transportation cannot do that non-emergency medical transportation can do. For example, again, I broke my foot a few years ago. I was on crutches and, uh, you know, obviously I couldn't drive. So I had to wait for my wife to take me to for my checkups, for my physio and all those things. Clearly, having a transportation capability like this, it would help, but it'll be helpful a lot more if my physician and my insurance company were also aware of my need and were facilitating or managing this in the context of my care and benefits. So what we are looking at transportation, Lyft as a transportation, is, a in, is embedding transportation into the benefit package of the care wallet holder. The same way as I'm gonna send you a pharmacy discount card or a telemedicine card or a eligibility card or an appointment card, I'm also gonna send you a Lyft card. Hmm. And that card will give you transportation as a benefit the same way as I'm gonna give you prescription as a benefit. But I'm gonna give you therapy as a benefit. But I'm gonna give you a nutritional support card as a benefit. So we basically saw ourselves as providing transportation not as an offhand thing, but as a planned function. So if I am getting cards in my wallet to meet my needs of health and curative and uh, prescriptive and rehabilitation type of benefits, why don't I get transportation as part of that whole ecosystem? So we are looking at this as a very much if healthcare is needs transportation when it needs it at the right time, and we're going to inject it into your wallet immediately at the right time at the point of need. So is this currently something that members can leverage? Can someone go on the Softcare app or the Lyft app and start paying for rides or using their cards to get rides now? Or is it still in development phase? So um, the answer is it's definitely in development phase. So we, the, uh, the, the objective of our Lyft ride is that our transportation, where we partner with Lyft right now, is that it is as much part of sponsored and managed benefits as anything else I mentioned. 
So e one, once we release this uh, new wallet version well, with the, the with the ability to support the left card, which uh, it will still be something that a sponsor of the network or a participant of the network has to issue the card to you. The idea of the first version of the wallet is that you are getting lift right as a benefit, not I so see. much that you are buying it so use through the, the app. Yeah. You can use the app any day, all day long to book a ride. Right. What we are doing is we are adding the value that this is a ride that is paid for by a sponsor or spon subsidized by a sponsor. You can certainly, if you have to pay part of the ride, you can pay for it using tokens in your wallet, but the, it's also cost sharing with your employer, with your insurer, with your family members who are in effect subsidizing this as a benefit. So we are looking at this as a managed transportation benefit first. Now, second phase, very quickly following that, is the fully self-paid model, which is what you just described, where I as a care wallet holder have nobody who is helping me or monitoring or managing or coordinating my care. I'm on my own. I need Lyft. Yes, you can still use that. The ease of usage is now that you can link it to an appointment card. You can link it to your prescription card and it will automatically figure out where you need to go and when you need to leave and how much the cost is and that you pay for it using tokens. But there are two very distinct type of use cases. One is is a benefit delivery through the card. The second is access to transportation as a card, which is what most people are familiar with. But we are doing much more on the first track because that's the unmet need. There is a massive gap between availability uh, and, the, and this need and availability of a solution. So right. we are again focused on delivering Lyft and other transportation services as a fully integrated managed benefit framework, which then creates also much bigger adoption. Because when an insurance company offers our Lyft cards as part of their care wallet, then you're going to have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people start using it versus if I just publish the care wallet with a card and hope voluntary adoption. So we are always looking for top down. Um, just one last question I have about the Lyft um, partnership. So, you know, one of my friends, actually, he's an EMT in New Jersey and he delivers people who are doing dialysis from their home to the dialysis center and like, you know, multiple times a week. And it's quite expensive actually to do this. And sometimes they don't even show up. So this is, I think, is this the type of application that would be very targeted, you know, in this program? Yes, we are. That's a very clear use case. I mean, you know, scheduled transportation on medical has several issues. One is that you have a long wait cycles. So if I need to, and my dad many years ago, um, was in dialysis and he would literally have to be ready, you know, for the um, the specialized transportation to show up. And it'll be a window between nine and 11. <laughs> so he would have to sort of get in his wheelchair and be at the doorstep of our, you know, unfortunately we, we could see the where the pickup is from the living room, but he would be in his wheelchair sitting in there waiting for anywhere between one to two hours before the bus would pull up and he or the, the van would pull up and he would go there. I mean, that's a huge barrier to, and he would sometimes get so tired, like, forget it, I'm not going. Hmm. Um, because, of, you know, it's too, you don't know when it's going to show up. I mean, it's right. very disruptive to a patient's life. Then there is a cost per mile, which is very, very high. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's an order of a magnitude higher than typically than you would uh, pay for transportation using one of the ride sharing services. Then you have flexibility. Uh, on the way back, once his uh, procedure was done, he could end up waiting in the lobby of the 
of the of the dialysis center two three hours before the ride could pick him back up and of course most often than not we just you know if i found out that he was waiting i would run from the office go get him but that's not option for everyone mm-hmm. uh, and it's just a poor option in any scenario mm-hmm. so the answer here is flexible near real-time availability tied to approved benefit and approved subsidized cost sharing linked to an actual medical need if you do those three things you link the transportation to need link the transportation to the convenience of the patient and the doctor and you manage and and subsidize a cost that triangle of those three values delivered through a care wallet will absolutely reduce cost will absolutely change patients life experience and pain experience and suffering it will absolutely make the physician happier because they will see when the patient will arrive versus waiting or when the patient will not arrive instead of wasting right. their time. And we will see overall cost per mile go down. So we are investing very heavily in this relationship with Lyft, not just in terms of announcing it and building it. We are actively sitting with many, many different clients and in designing benefit models where the Lyft as an integrated benefit will will create significant savings. And without naming names, one recent discussion we had with a single client, you know, the, we estimated that we could reduce comfortably their current annual transportation cost for their membership, uh, which is running over $200 million a year for them today. That's how much they spend today on, oh. uh, on uh, you know, specialized medical transportation a year. Uh, we could cut that down, you know, we think we can cut it down by by half, but even if they say, "Look, if you cut it down by twenty percent, you'll save me forty million bucks a year." Um, so there is these are staggering numbers, and when you think about it, that's not a, even a huge insurer; that's a relatively mid-sized insurer. So, and there are hundreds of them out there, right? I mean, there are, uh, my old company was, you know, um, over a million lives. This insurer we're talking about is only one hundred and fifty thousand lives, and they're spending two hundred million bucks a year in transportation. A lot of it, which is considered to be, to be um, unfriendly from accessibility, timeliness, flexibility, and mm-hmm. cost perspective. So staggering numbers are at work, and all of that will flow through the care wallet. So yes, in the end, if we move this client onto our platform this year, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of lift rides will be taken through our platform uh, at full full ramp. And that's just a single client. And I'm sure there's some regulatory barriers for that as well, though. So can you can you just broadly discuss how regulations sure. have, have uh, impacted your business? Well, regulation is always present. And sure. regulation is a dual-edged sword. In some ways, regulation is absolutely needed and, to protect and if you can the, actually, the right. Sorry to interrupt, but if you can actually tie in to the fact that, as I understand it, Softcare is an Estonia-based company. Right. So yes. if you can tie that in and how, you know, what are some of the advantages and disadvantages of of being uh, Estonia based and how that plays into regulation as well? I'd be curious to know about that. So um, so first coming back to regulation, then the regulation is very much local. So you can have state and federal regulation in the U.S. Uh, and depending on the program, you have to comply with both. Uh, but those reg- and, and sometimes you need to prove to the regulator that you are doing um, a net positive, not a net negative, uh, in terms of uh, serving the the members and the citizens. And regulations also vary in the sense that a ins- ins- commercial insurance plan, you know, is primarily concerned about patient safety and patient privacy, but is free to design their benefit plan typically, uh, and is then 
subject to the insurance commissioner signing off on the benefit plan. So you have to show metrics. You have to always show what you're doing for the patient's benefit. What are you doing for the provider's ease of uh, administering care? And what are you doing to improve the uh, the outcome? So same goals we talked about. And if you have credible um, impact or if you show a credible uh, journey, then you get regulatory approvals, sometimes easily, sometimes more difficult. How does it impact our business? It It is not a barrier because our clients are the ones who deal with regulatory compliance and we work with them to design care networks that would either meet or exceed regulatory requirements. So that's really part of the network design. It's not it's not impossible to do. In fact, it's something that we are pretty good at and they are very good at because they have done this for decades. Uh, so we give them new tools to, to achieve and exceed regulatory guidelines. Uh, when you look at government programs, you have to go through either innovation track, or you have to go through exemption models, or you have to essentially align with the uh, with the stated regulatory goal. So like central Medicare and Medicare services constantly issues innovation grants and constantly issues, you know, innovative program guidelines to bring that kind of innovative solution. So we benefit from being so innovative that we typically draw a lot of positive reaction from the regulators. Hmm. Uh, but then it varies, right, in different countries. And some countries so lightly regulated that they're desperate for any kind of a positive uh, improvement. In some countries, the, des- the need for access is so great uh, that regulation is all about how do I get patient-provider interaction happening better. So depending on the the societal and structural needs of the insurance company or the state or the, or the country, you work with the regulator. Um, but it's not been a barrier. It, it is just that something you have to do. And if you know how to, to design the network to meet regulatory objectives, then, then you sooner or later will get that approval. It hasn't impacted us negatively at all. Uh, it's just something we plan for and prepare for and just do well. Hmm. Then you have the question about Estonia. So Estonia to us, so Estonia is a corporate parent, right? That's where this whole care is registered based out of for many reasons. One is an EU country. It's got tremendous uh, transparency and a digital government. And they're the leaders in essentially e-citizenship and e-government model, meaning the things are online and they're transparent and they are real time and they are, uh, you know, far less bureaucratic even compared to the U.S., so we like the fact that it's that being in an EU country with ability to sell east and west, right? We can easily go uh, as far east as we have to go, and we can also easily serve US. But what we do is we either find local partners or and or create local reseller relationships in each geography where we are selling. So the Estonian company is really the intellectual property slash platform owner slash investor in the platform and developing the care community. But the our clients deal with a local entity always. That local entity is either a, uh, a reseller entity or a partner or an integrator who they are more familiar with. So they're not, you know, interacting with Estonia for service or support or delivery. They're simply recognizing that the platform ownership and the intellectual property of this platform resides with the Estonia holding company. So that's how we run our business. It allows us to serve, you know, to be very compliant. You can't really do it any other way except to have 
the right local footprint in each continent, in each jurisdiction. In some places, SolveCare has its own footprint, but by and large, our vision and our strategy is to use local partners. Hmm. So we, we will be announcing new partnerships. So that's a difference between a client and a partner, right? Client is the one who uses a network and partner is the one who configures and delivers and supports a network or a platform in that jurisdiction of clients. So how many employees does SolveCare have at the moment? Um, we are a little bit over 100. I don't know the exact count, but I would say, sure. uh, I would venture to guess between 100 and 110 mm-hmm. um, is the number. We've and been adding some people recently. Yeah, cool. they are. We have London office. We have US office. We have a fairly large development team. Uh, we have uh, back office in Estonia. It's, it's, and we are expanding into Asia. Okay. Uh, so we'll be announcing, well, uh, to, be, to be accurate, we'll be supporting partners in Asia we may have to have some uh, small headcount from SolveCare, mm-hmm. but by and large, we can support our partners globally from a single location. Which country in Asia? Uh, we were in Hong Kong and Seoul and Tokyo recently, and all three are in play right now gotcha. from where our next office will go. All right. Very cool. Can you kind of, you know, briefly, I know this could be a really long question but our really long answer but can you briefly just describe your technology stack like what kind of blockchain platforms are you using and um, things like that just for our crypto so, crypto fans here well we use um, the ethereum uh, in a co- uh, framework from a blockchain perspective but we use a variety of other technologies to build out the full platform and the platform is multi-tier sure. and blockchain is one of the sort of the foundational tiers but there are layers below and layers above it. Uh, so when you think about care protocol, we we wrote that entire layer ourselves. It, it can work with any blockchain, but we have committed ourselves to the Ethereum. And the particular Ethereum, I, my CTO is better equipped to say that, but the we have focused on the the enterprise version of Ethereum, essentially the uh, with an objective that each care network can operate as a private blockchain connector to a a mainnet through which they can do network to network transactions. So the uh, that's a general idea, but we use, uh, I mean, Java is our core technology above blockchain. And then I know that we use a variety of partner technologies around machine learning and, and uh, around data analytics, um, around transportation layer, we use messaging system. And I believe we use Java messaging system services to do off-chain transactions, but uh, it's a fairly complex platform in the sense that we've been investing in it uh, for the last two years, day and night. It's a very aggr- very aggressive rollout schedule, and our clients are demanding even faster hmm. um, yeah, you know, sure. time to market. So it's a, it's a great journey, but the thing is we've been there, done that before. This is, blockchain is new and evolving technology, sure. but the platform building is something we've done many times. I've built massive platforms before, but this is the most fun. This is the most exciting. This is also the most efficient. I guess it's just because you've done it five times before, yeah, it becomes easier and easier. That's fair. Were there any events or announcements in the healthcare blockchain space that was very surprising to you or unexpected? And why? Well, I think overall I'm pleased with the, uh, not so much surprising, but an observation. When I f- first launched Solvecare two years ago and I... Um, started to speak about the use of distributed ledger technology as a coordination and, and, and benefit management framework, you know, everybody was talking more like ID and, 
and uh, medical records on blockchain, and it was more the basic stuff. So we were perhaps very far ahead, and we heard a lot of criticism from the market that, well, you know, it's, uh, people are only going to be interested in blockchain for the very obvious use case of medical records or something like this. And we kept saying that's the obvious, but not the most compelling value. You can you can understand it as an average consumer and therefore get excited about it. But when you think about the healthcare delivery models and healthcare payments, that's not going to change the move the needle. It's not going to move cost or outcomes uh, as you as uh, much as you think. The real iceberg is below the water, and that's where the real value will lie. What is really nice to see is that over the last two years, you know, people are coming to this epiphany that we can use blockchain to actually coordinate care and benefits and payments better. And it's somewhat, in some ways, it's flattering. It's in other ways, it's frustrating to say that, yep, told you so. It's this is nothing. I'm glad you have this epiphany, but you all had all you had to do is to go read the white paper from two years ago, and you will see that we spelled out in great detail how blockchain will actually be used in healthcare. So it's a industry is evolving and maturing to where at least the we don't no longer have this conversation benefit administration of blockchain. What do you mean? Isn't blockchain all about electronic medical records? And the answer is yes, it is, but it's also equally, if not more, powerful with the way we are deploying it. So I think industry is maturing. That's nice to see. And we have big names jumping in, um, you know, three-letter acronyms that everybody knows about, and they're making a lot of splash in the market, and that's also good because they are investing very heavily in, you know, if you will, evangelizing, but they're nowhere close to us in terms of actually implementing. So we are we feel that we have the right positioning in the market. Now, why do I say this? in the context of surprises. Uh, I'm a little bit surprised as to how quickly the needle has moved from what I would call very primitive uh, use cases to fairly uh, well thought out use cases. In the sense that the people are now starting to talk about real use cases in healthcare. The ones that we have already built and deployed, ones that we are building, they no longer require the long introduction that we had to do two years ago. So I'm, I'm actually pleased at the overall migration from hype to reality, if you will, and from you know from uh, uh, use cases that were purely hyperbolic and and uh, purely aspirational to real use cases that people will write checks for, uh, and that reflects in our numbers. As I said to you earlier, we we are comfortable in saying that we would have met our 2019 targets by end of this month. That's only because not because we are a genius or something, because we built to this awareness and the awareness has has uh, risen quickly. So industry is maturing fast. That's, I guess, the positive surprise. Hmm. Very interesting. Thank you. What would you consider to be your biggest mistake? Um, that's a great question. I know you wrote that to me earlier, and, and I have thought about it. And there are several. Some of them uh, probably we shouldn't speak out loud because they would give our competition some advantage. But I would say that... Our biggest mistake in this uh, whole um, journey has been uh, maybe the limitation in our inability to explain to an average consumer, average person who is crypto enthusiast and blockchain enthusiast, how much of an impact we are going to ultimately have 
on the lives of people, not just like, oh, I love crypto and I can trade in coins or tokens or uh, what I see us not still being able to do as well as I would like to do is to help people understand the human impact, mm-hmm. uh, the the incredible possibilities and, and real pathway to achieving better access to care for you and I and for our kids, for our parents, the ability to manage disease better uh, and not to have a avoidable human suffering from lack of knowledge or lack of timely intervention, and to have an independent consumer who is actually not just a passive recipient of healthcare services by people who are smarter than him or her, but an engaged informed patient. I don't want to be a dumb patient. I also don't want to be a helpless patient. And I also don't want to be hoping that I'm getting the right care. And I also don't want to be worried about who the heck's going to pay for it. So to me, this journey, I get it. I feel it. I've lived the both the positive and the negative nightmare. Most people simply have the negative experience, not the positive. And I think we need to do a better job of, of uh, explaining the true impact of this. We are getting better at it, uh, but because we know healthcare so, so well, what is obvious to us is not always obvious to others. And, and I think we, we are trying very hard to bring more and more humanly understandable use cases to market in the form of care cards that people can get excited about. But they, honestly, the, the impact of our platform will not be fully understood for another couple of years, and that's fine. But I would like to move it as move that awareness forward faster. Yeah, and I was really pleased to hear that you know you're using or looking to use machine learning and AI to really optimize patient care. So taking the data that your you know your users and members are generating and actually trying to create new models and what is actually good care because that is something that is still uh, a nirvana right it's still something that people are trying to you know reach so i'm just really excited for that too yeah so another fun question here so who is your favorite business person researcher or scientist in history or now (laughs) well there are so many um i mean in the in the, the contemporary i mean there are so many genius people out there but i'm a big fan of people who foresee the future and who take action to to use that foresight to do good things. But, you know, one of the, my favorite, of course, uh, business leaders I follow is Bill Gates, not because of his wealth, but because what he's doing to make people, I mean, his work as part of the Bill Gates, Melinda Gates Foundation, you know, it truly comes from the heart and it truly meets needs that are staggering in their impact, you know, be it malaria elimination or be it the... Uh, the prevention of uh, avoidable disease from poor hygiene. I mean, this is this is basic human suffering that he's going after. And certainly he has a means to do so, but he also has the commitment. Mm-hmm. And so I read his blogs and I read his, you know, all his public musings and publications. Um, and we have a similar goal. Um, I have told my team that Solve is not the scale of uh, Microsoft founder, but we will do our part. So we are going to launch in this year and certainly put it into action next year, our own initiatives to drive down, um, you know, to impact human suffering as we can, both through the use of our platform and use of our knowledge and our network of physicians and whatnot. But we are designing programs that are small, you know, small, small, small compared to what they're doing, but we will do our part. Um, so we're working on that, but he's certainly a role model. 
Right, um, and certainly at a you know sometime in the future you can, you know, let's hope you know, soft care can potentially get to that level where they can have an even bigger impact, um, and, and just I think blockchain in general is going to have that impact uh, in terms of reducing human suffering. Um, but yeah, so that's good yeah. to hear and very inspiring. And at every scale, right? I mean, people think, well, I'll do this when I'm successful, or mm-hmm. I'll do this when I have more money. You never have enough money and you never have too little money. Do yeah. it now. Yeah. So we are going to um, do what we can and each year do more. Sure. Um, but he's certainly, an, uh, I mean, the other one, of course, um, that many of us follow is Warren Buffett, not again for his, in, in his just his investing wisdom, but just the way he approaches uh, and diagnoses and analyzes trends and the way he uh, goes back to fundamental basics. You know, to me, he represents a very sort of a thoughtful, value-driven approach to doing business. His business is different than ours, but to me, a value-centric approach of leadership and execution is is a good way to ride out any short-term tempests, if you will. So uh, I look at that as a as a role model, just from a different industry, but still, some you know, I would want to be as thoughtful and conscientious as he has been in his long journey. So I look at that. Um, there so are many. One thing about Warren Buffett, though, he's a pessimist about Bitcoin. Are you also <laughs> uh, negative again, uh, towards Bitcoin, or what's your thoughts on Bitcoin? No, I'm not. You know, obviously, we are strong believers in the power of decentralization. And look, we don't have to be right about everything in our right. lives. Right. Uh, and maybe he'll be proven right. I don't think so. I think we see we're seeing a revolution of empowerment uh, through blockchain and crypto that would be a shame to see fail. So mm-hmm. we are obviously investing our lives into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we see that that every industry has some potential improvements. And and many people compare blockchain to internet. Many people compare blockchain to computing. You know, it is a transformative technology if you use it to redefine relationships. To me, it wasn't one line always. Mm-hmm. You know, blockchain is a technology that can help you redefine how people interact with rely upon and transact with each other it's a redefinition of relationships 100% that will make us rethink how we how we live uh, i'm not uh, smart enough to think about all the use cases nor do i care to but in healthcare i see the potential clearly and there's plenty of uh, plenty doing, plenty of use cases just within the healthcare space so absolutely very good um, then there are many others you know i mean the, the list is long i read a lot i look at a lot of the management gurus uh, and I try to assimilate the best of their thinking. I mean, I grew up on Peter Drucker. I was a kid when he was famous thinker of his times or our times. Um, there are many, Stephen Covey. And, but I guess the, the bottom line is everybody, every good thinker gives you something to think about. I don't have to agree with 100% of what they say. Mm-hmm. I try to read as much to then I make up my own mind. You know, I, don't, I will not follow anybody blindly, but I'll pick up the snippet that aligns with my values and then i will absorb it absolutely and i think we've given a lot for our listeners to uh think about today in this show uh pardeep is there anything else you want to leave the audience with anything else you want to share that i haven't asked already well um no thank you for the opportunity i know i might have given lengthier answers than typical and certainly feel free to use them as you see fit i guess the message to the audience is you know um Engage with us. Don't be passive. If you have, if you're skeptical, tell us why this won't work. If you have an idea, come tell us how 
what we can do more in the space we are in. If it com comes to human care and human suffering and, and human outcomes around their health, we are open to listening to the needs of a single person as we are open to listening to the needs of a billion people. So I would invite your audience to reach out to us. We're very accessible uh, on various What's the best platforms. Way? What's the best way to so, reach you? So I think we have uh, our, the best channel is of course our Telegram channel where there are thousands of people very engaged with us. It's self-care channel on Telegram. We have literally tens of thousands of people uh, engaged there daily. Uh, then there is also uh, our email, info at solve.care. That is absolutely monitored and responded to. It does not go unattended even for a day. Mm -hmm. So when people write, they will hear back from us. Uh, we also have a variety of uh, online sessions that I do, um, which then trigger an avalanche of questions. But info and Telegram are definitely active all the time. And then I'm accessible uh, on, you know, for a specific conversation through my, whenever that's appropriate. So sure. the answer is SolveCare is always on, right? We are 24 seven company. Somebody's always monitoring everything and all our communication channels. So reach out to us and we will, we will listen to, uh, if you have a great idea, you wanna build a care card for your community or your country or your healthcare system or you want to be an integrator, or you want to help deploy our platform in that, or you just have an idea for us to do something. We are uh, we're very keen to listen. Healthcare is a human need, and we want to be as relevant to as many different uh, societies as possible. Fantastic. And I'll make sure I'll, I'll put those pieces of information in the show notes as well so people can easily access um, or ask questions. Again, thanks, Pradeep. You have a good day. You too. Thanks very much. Hey, all you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org and remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.